8,868. This is uh, the prophet Ezekiel speaking. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out of the spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me to and fro among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, O sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded and as I was prophesying there was a noise, a rattling sound and the bones came together bone to bone. I looked and tendons and flesh appeared in them and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy son of man and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me and breath entered them and they came to life and stood on their feet a vast army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone and we are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, O my people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them, I will put my spirit in you and you will live. I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. Let me pray briefly before we look at this passage. Father, where your word is, there is life. Because where your word is, that is how your Holy Spirit speaks to us. And so, Father, we ask tonight that we would hear what your word has to say to us, that, Holy Spirit, you would convict us where we need to be convicted, that you would comfort us where we need to be comforted. Father, it's an amazing thing that we get to hear your voice this evening. And so help us to listen and help us to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, hopelessness is probably one of the worst feelings you can face in life. I wonder if any of you have ever been in a, in a situation where you just feel so utterly powerless and helpless to do anything about it, where you feel completely bereft of any sort of hope. I think maybe perhaps there is a a misconception that if you're a Christian, you, sh- you shouldn't ever be feeling like that. But the truth is that if you live passionately and boldly for Jesus, you will feel that. It's hard to be hopeful, isn't it, when, when you look at the state of the church in our nation? 
It's hard to be hopeful when there are people you know who, who said they follow Jesus but then walked away from him and have turned their back on the gospel. It's hard to be hopeful when you look at yourself and you're so broken by your own sin, that sin that you, you keep repeating and you just can't seem to stop. It's really hard to be hopeful when you do want to tell others about Jesus. But no one cares and no one wants to listen. It's hard to be hopeful when you're suffering and it's hard to be hopeful when you're confronted with one of the most hopeless situations, the reality of, of death itself. And those are real situations, and many, many of you, I'm sure, have been there. And while some of you may not be there at that moment, the truth is that if you live long enough, and if you are seeking to make Jesus known, you will feel this. I know for myself personally, um, even at the start of this week, it was very much what I was feeling, um, thinking about the work that we are going to start in Charleston seems so impossible, the task ahead. But in God's great mercy, we have this wonderful passage of Ezekiel 37. And this vision that Ezekiel has in this passage, this vision was given to God's people in a time of real hopelessness. And it's a vision that was given to Ezekiel so that God would instill in them a strong, renewed hope that is unshakable and everlasting. So my aim this evening is really simple. It's to give us hope. Hope for situations that seem so hopeless. Hope that is not some sort of wish fulfillment, but a hope that is real and tangible and certain because it's a hope that is grounded in God's commitment to keep his promises to us. So here's what I want to do tonight. I want, I want to first of all try and get our heads around what's actually happening in this passage and what the context is. We've had some weird Bible readings tonight, um, and this is a weird one, especially maybe you're here for the first time um, and uh, you've probably thought the Bible seems like quite an insignificant book and then We've just read these passages. Um, so I want us to understand what it's actually saying, and we'll see that it, it's profoundly significant to us and to our situation today. And then what I want to do is draw out three big applications for us in the church of Christ today from Ezekiel 37 and show how they can give you a hope that will help you to endure through some of the most hopeless situations. Okay, let's try and get our heads around what's actually happening in this passage. In this chapter, we see two things. Firstly, we see a picture of Israel's hopeless situation. And secondly, we see a picture of God's hope-filled solution. So firstly then, Israel's hopeless situation. Now, what's the context uh, in which this vision takes place? What we are reading of here, it was uh, around 600 years before Jesus. And at that time, God's people were confined to one nation, the nation of Israel. They were the people that, that God had chosen, people that God had made these great promises to. So he promised that, that they would be this great nation that would bless the world. He promised that, that from Israel would come a king who would save the world. He promised that, that they would have their own land, and, and God himself would live among them as their God. These people, in short, 
they had the promises of God given to save mankind. But at the time of the book of Ezekiel, Israel's in a real, real crisis. You see, for hundreds and hundreds of years, these people had constantly rejected and rebelled against God. I mean, they did some of the most horrendous things that you could possibly imagine. And yet, they're supposed to be God's people, His chosen people. And so, after constant warning, God eventually brought judgment on them. And it was terrible and terrifying the judgment that he brought on these people. First, he sent the Assyrian army to wipe out Israel's northern kingdom. And then in 592 BC, he sent the mighty Babylonian empire to Israel's capital city of Jerusalem. The Babylonians sacked the city, and they took most of the residents who lived there off into exile as prisoners in Babylon. Now, Ezekiel was one of those prisoners. And so, as he is prophesying, as he is, uh, God is speaking through him in this book, it's to people who are prisoners with him, who are exiles off in Babylon with him. Now, what we see in Ezekiel is that all the exiles, all the prisoners of Israel were sure that God's promises to his people would be okay as long as Jerusalem was standing as long as the temple was still in Jerusalem, and as long as there was still even just a tiny little remnant of people there, then God's promises would be okay. However, God has been speaking through Ezekiel to tell these exiles not to put their hope in that city because he's going to destroy it. And for years, Ezekiel's message to these people was one of judgment and doom. It's a difficult book to read Ezekiel. And then Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 21. It's the turning point in the entire book. The lowest moment in the entire history of Israel. Ezekiel 33, verse 21. A messenger comes to Ezekiel and tells him the most devastating news you could hear. The city has been struck down. Jerusalem has fallen. All that's left now of God's people of his promises to the world to save them is a ragtag bunch of prisoners by the waters of Babylon. They have nothing. Their slim hope for survival was all dependent upon Jerusalem, but now they have no city. They have no king. They have no nation. They have no land. They have no temple and therefore no assurance of God's presence. And they have no hope no hope whatsoever. But then in Ezekiel chapter 34, all the way through to, to chapter 48, Ezekiel's message changes. No longer is it a message of judgment and doom, but he changes to a message of hope. And in these chapters, you have the most amazing promises of restoration of what God is going to do with this ragtag bunch of exiles, of what is going to come through them. And right at the heart of all the hope and these promises that we see here is this vision here in Ezekiel chapter 37, a vision in which God speaks of the new life he will give to his people. But it doesn't begin very hopeful. 
have a look at, look at verse 1. Uh, Ezekiel, in the book of Ezekiel, he kind of gets, he gets transported off in these weird visions, um, kind of carried away and, uh, and taken to these places. We don't know um, how that happened, whether it was a dream or not. In my head, a kind of picture like, you know how you pick that little man up on Google, on Google Maps, and you drop him? I kind of picture God doing that with Ezekiel. Um, so he is transported in this vision, and he's brought to a valley of death. Now, let's try and picture in your mind what this would be like. Let's try and view this through Ezekiel's eyes. It would have been absolutely horrifying. Picture a great big valley, and as far as the eye can see, there's just bones littered everywhere, like some, like some enormous mass grave after a genocide. And Ezekiel is standing there in the middle of this valley, and God starts leading them through the valley. And as he walked through, he would have heard the crunch beneath his feet, a skull, a ribcage, a femur, littering the valley. And it's shocking, and God leads him through it. Verse 2, he led me to and fro among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley bones that were very dry, bones everywhere. And the fact that they're dry implies that, that these bones have been dead for a long, long time. Now, what on earth is this all about, this vision? Well, we don't actually have to look very far because verse 1 to 10, they contain the vision itself, but verses 11 to 14 of, of chapter 37 contain the explanation. So, look at verse 11. This is, what, this is what the bones are. Then God said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. So this vision of this valley of death is a symbolic depiction of the house of Israel. It's a depiction of these um, exiles that Ezekiel is himself preaching to. And of course, they're, they're not literally dead. These are the people that have survived, the handful that have survived the onslaught of the Babylonians. But the image of dry bones conveys the fact that, that they're spiritually dead to God, that they are utterly spent and bereft of any hope, that they have nothing, that they have been cut off from God. I mean, look at that cry in verse 11. You can just feel the darkness of their situation, the hopelessness, and the fact that they are like dead bones shows that they can do nothing to get out of this. Death itself seems so final and so lost. But mercifully, the, the God of Israel and the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is big into the business of resurrection. This is where we see the second thing, God's hope-filled solution. So, let's keep looking with Ezekiel through his eyes. Let's, let's stand with him a bit longer in this valley of death to see what happens. Ezekiel hears God speak to him, and he says this in verse Four, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. So Ezekiel is called by God, 
preach a sermon to these dread, dead, dry bones. Now, that's a tough gig. You know, sometimes when you stand up the front to preach, you can look out there and you can see a few of you dozing. Uh, you think that we can't, but we can. Um, <laughs> Ezekiel's audience is literally dead. A pile of bones. That is who he's got to preach to. Seems ridiculous, doesn't it? Then something amazing happens. Ezekiel starts to preach the word of God. Bones start to move. Hundreds of thousands of bones start to rattle. Have you ever heard the sound of, of thousands of bones rattling? I hope not. But Ezekiel has, he could tell you. In fact, the word for rattling in in the Hebrews is the same word that's used to describe an earthquake. This kind of deafening noise as all these bones start to come together and are starting to be joined bone to bone as they start to form a skeleton. Then then the sinews start to appear. And Ezekiel is still preaching. Then the flesh starts to appear. And he's still preaching the word of God. And then skin starts to form round. I mean, this must have been an incredible vision. In my head, it's kind of like, do you know that scene in Indiana Jones where the the Nazi guy looks at the Ark of the Covenant and then his face melts off and he's just a skeleton? It's like that, but in reverse. (laughs) And before long, as Ezekiel is preaching the Word of God, there would have been this army of people standing before him. But they're still not quite alive. You see, they need breath. Now, the word for breath used there in verse 9, it's a Hebrew word, ruach. I've got to be careful because my old Hebrew professor is in the congregation tonight. So, I think that's how it's pronounced, ruach. It's also the same word that's used for spirit. So, they need God's spirit. They need his ruach. They need his breath to make them alive. Um, You can see it's also the same word for wind as well. So, the word is used a lot in verse 9. That's why in verse 14 as well, God talks about how he makes, he's going to make his people alive by his spirit. And notice how God's spirit makes them alive through the preaching of God's word. Ezekiel has to keep on preaching, keep on prophesying, and the Spirit of God gives them life. And I think for the original exiles, as they heard Ezekiel tell them about this vision, it would have conjured up in their mind images of of Genesis chapter 2. From way back in the, the beginning of the Bible, when God created the universe with the power of His Word, and then He created Adam in a very special way. He formed him first, and then He breathed into Adam and gave him life. And what's happening in this vision, it's almost like Ezekiel's seen this mass recreation of humanity, a new humanity being formed out of these exiles. Now, what was the big application for Ezekiel's original audience as he shared this vision of God with them? The big application was, don't lose hope because God is going to do something new, something incredible. 
God is going to create a new humanity from you that will never more be under his judgment. God is going to give you his spirit by the power of his word and make you alive. And so the exiles would have, would have held on to this vision of Ezekiel. You can imagine them, even as they, they walked back to the land out of Babylon, you can imagine them speaking to each other and saying, what was that vision that Ezekiel had that he told us of? Tell us again. And they did eventually return to Israel. But I don't think, and I don't think they thought, that when they finally went back to that land, that was the fulfillment of Ezekiel's vision. You know, God does talk here about returning to the land, but that was only the beginning. They would have been waiting for something greater, a new life, something that we have now, something that came through the arrival of Jesus Christ 600 years later. You see, Jesus came to make a new humanity. Jesus came to give us his Holy Spirit. Jesus came so that we would never more be under the judgment of God. He came to make this vision possible, a reality. So we are not waiting for this promise like the original exiles were. We're standing in it now. Ah, there's still plenty we're waiting for. But for the remainder of our time, I want us to see how this vision has been fulfilled today. And if you're a Christian, how it's been fulfilled in your life. And in doing so, this will give us a great hope in our covenant God. So let me draw out three applications. Firstly, this vision gives us hope that God has made us alive in Christ. Look, the picture of Israel as a kind of a valley of, of dry bones is not just a picture of them, but a picture of all humanity. This is a picture of you without Jesus, a picture of the natural heart of the human being. We are dead to God, dead, every single one of us, dead in the sense that, that we have no desire to follow him, we give no thought to him, we do not want to listen to him, and we willfully suppress any truth that we may have about him. That is everyone. We are therefore a world that is in rebellion and a world that is under the judgment of God Almighty. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2, to the church that without Christ, human beings are all dead in our sins and transgressions. And it's so hopeless. And we cannot get out of that hopeless state any more than a dead body can somehow will themselves back to life. But that is what Jesus came to change. On his death on the cross, Jesus takes the punishment of our sin so that we can be forgiven of our sin that's why Christians celebrate his death. But Jesus didn't just die to bring forgiveness to us. He died to make us alive to God, to unite us to God. So if you follow Jesus, not only will you be forgiven of all your sin, but he will give you his Holy Spirit, his Ruach. God himself will come and live in you. You are, to use the language of the New Testament, a new creation, a new humanity. Jesus calls it a new birth. 
by God's Spirit, we are now united to Jesus, which is why Paul says in that same passage in Ephesians 2, though we were dead in our sins and transgressions, God has made us alive in Christ. By grace you have been saved. How how do I know that's me? What does that look like? What does that look like then? How how do I really know that, that I have been made alive to Christ? That I've been made alive to God? Well, Ezekiel 37. Do you notice that there is one big defining trait in here for all those who have been made alive? See if you can spot it. Verse 6, verse 13, and verse 14. What's going to happen to these people? Then you will know that I am the Lord. That is how you know you've been made alive by God's Spirit. You know Him. And I don't just mean intellectually, though that is part of it, but you know Him personally. You know Him intimately. You know Him affectionately. You really know what it means to call him king. And you know what it means to say that that he is my father. You know his grace. You, You know his mercy. You want to love him because you know him. You see, being a Christian is not about adopting some idea or some philosophy. But it's about knowing our creator. That's new life. That is what Ezekiel is seeing happening in this valley. And if that is you, you have undergone a radical transformation. The impossible has happened. If you have a desire to love God, to love Christ, that is an amazing thing. Only someone who's been made alive by the Spirit could have that desire. We were dead as dry bones, but God has breathed His Spirit into us. See how this gives you hope? You are not dry bones if you're a Christian. You're a living, breathing, spirit-infused child of God. And you have the Spirit, so walk in step with the Spirit. How do I do that? How do I fight off sin in my life? Because sometimes it does feel hopeless, but it's not hopeless. You have the Spirit. You've been made alive. How do I do it? How do I walk in step with the Spirit? Well, what's going on in Ezekiel? How does the Spirit work? He works through the Word of God. The Word of God and and the Holy Spirit, they always go hand in hand in the Bible. We mustn't separate them. So we become Christians through hearing God's Word, and we keep going as Christians by hearing God's Word. God has made us alive, and we just need to listen. Secondly, this passage gives us real hope for evangelism. This is what's really stuck out for me, I think. Ezekiel 37. If what we've been saying is true, then you and I didn't become Christians because we were brought up to be Christians. You don't become a Christian because somehow you're more disposed towards Christianity or because you've been persuaded, though these may be factors. We were made alive to God because God himself intervened and breathed new life into us wasn't that somehow our personalities were more bent to being 
towards God. We were dead. It was utterly impossible for us without God's Spirit to have any sort of desire for Him. And therefore, when it comes to people responding to the gospel, that means that there is never anyone that is too far gone for God. We're, we're all dead. So you can't be more dead than someone else. Some of you may be thinking, well, I understand that, but you've not been to my office. You've not seen my staff room. You don't realize how hostile people are in my class. You don't have the family that I have. You don't know the reaction that, that they give me every time I even mention the fact that I'm a Christian. Some of those situations feel hopeless. Can God change them and make them alive? Can the thousands of people that are out here on the Perth Road who don't give two hoots about Christianity, can they come to God and know Him? Can the people in Charleston, four and a half thousand people, Let me rephrase the question. Can these bones live? That's the question in verse 3, isn't it? Can these bones live? Humanly speaking, no. I love Ezekiel's response, though. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say no, nor does he presume that, that God will, even. He just throws himself on God's sovereignty and says, Lord God, you know. Do you know, I wonder if maybe the problem that we have with evangelism is not that we view it as being too hard. I wonder if we just don't view it as being hard enough. Do you know what it's like when you tell others about Jesus? It's as ridiculous as it is preaching to bones. It's as ridiculous as going into a graveyard and and saying to the graves, come to life doesn't matter who these people are. That's what, what they're all like. Evangelism's not hard. It's impossible. If it was down to us. But it's not. It's down to the life-giving Spirit of God. If you make evangelism all about you and, 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 and your rhetoric and, and how well you do, that will crush you in despair. We do have to tell. That's the commission of the Lord Jesus, that we go and tell the nations. But we do so not trusting in ourselves. Rather, we trust in the power of God's Word and the power of God's Spirit. Because the Spirit is with you. He made you alive. And he who began a good work in you will see it through to completion. And when you talk about Jesus, the Holy Spirit goes with you on your mission. Do you know there's a really fascinating bit in John chapter 20. I always thought it was really weird and never really understood what was going on until I started looking at Ezekiel 37. Just after his resurrection... Jesus is with his disciples and he's about to commission them off to to go out to the world to share this this gospel of forgiveness that that Jesus has just achieved by his death on the cross. And then he gathers them together and he does something really weird. He breathes on them. And then he says to them, receive the Holy Spirit. See what's going on? 
It's the new humanity. It's the recreation of humanity. It's Genesis 2. It's Ezekiel 37. Jesus is breathing new life into them. The Holy Spirit is coming from Jesus to them. And when they go out into the world, the Holy Spirit will go out to all those who respond to this gospel of forgiveness. And the words that they spoke were the very words of God Himself. God Himself. Their, their testimony is how the Holy Spirit was going to convict the world. Which is why immediately after that event, John tells us why he wrote his gospel. Immediately after, he says, I wrote this so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you would have life. When we go out and share the word of God, it brings life. What we have here in our hands are words that can bring life. That doesn't mean that evangelism is just me reciting Bible verses verbatim, though, though that's part of it, I guess. But it does mean that everything I say, everything I know about the Lord Jesus Christ is shaped by what's written in here in God's Word. It does mean that, that one of the most effective things you can do, and I've seen this happen so many times, one of the most effective evangelistic things you can do is sit down with someone who's interested and read the Bible one-to-one with them. Can these bones live? Can we plant churches, not just in Charleston, but throughout Dundee? Can my workmates, my colleagues... My classmates become Christians. Can these bones live? Don't tell God that they can't. Don't tell him it's not possible. You, O Lord, know. Thirdly, finally, we'll close with this last point of application. Gives us hope in the face of death. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if we have hope in Christ only for this life, then we are to be pitied more than anyone else. You see, the hope of the gospel, the hope of the the good news of Jesus Christ is all tied up with resurrection. Not just spiritual resurrection, but physical resurrection from the grave. And I actually think that what we see in Ezekiel 37 is a prophecy of the physical resurrection of all the saints of God. Just have a read there in verse 12. Notice how the language changes. We're not in the valley. We're in the graveyard now. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, O my people, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. Christianity is all about resurrection. It's everything about Christianity is tied into resurrection. It's the linchpin of all Christian hope is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It wasn't a metaphor. It was something that really happened and it's the proof that God has given to the world that death is not the end, that there is definitely something after it and there is one who knows because he has defeated it and conquered the death conqueror, the spirit giver, the word of God. He is the resurrection and the life. And because he died and rose again, it means that when we die, we too will be raised. It was the spirit of God that rose Jesus from the grave. 
And he will do it to us too. He will raise us to new life, to a life of com- complete restoration, with no evil in our hearts, with, with nothing to hinder us from enjoying God, with no threats of danger, with perfect love and peace and security, no disease, no sin, no wickedness, no suffering, and no more death. That is the internal, unshakable hope of the gospel. And it's a hope that has caused hundreds of thousands of Christians throughout the ages to to hold on to their faith at the cost of their own lives because they know that their king has risen. Death does not have the final word for us. Jesus, he has removed its sting. He has flipped it on its head. He has taken that curse against mankind and has used it now as our gateway into paradise. See, as I think about these exiles here that Ezekiel spoke to, we're not all that dissimilar in some ways. We are. We've, we've seen how these promises have been fulfilled. We've got we can more reason to be confident than they do. But we're still exiles, aren't we? When this is not home, this is not home. We're waiting for a heavenly home. This is not this world here. With all the goodness that is we see from, from God's creation, this is not the home of God's new humanity. But as we struggle with doubt and confusion and pain and suffering, there is one thing that we can be certain certain of, one thing we can be absolutely sure of. And it's right here at the very end of our passage in verse 14. When God says something, he does it. You will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it. When God says, if we follow Jesus, we will be forgiven, then we will be forgiven. When God says he will change us, then he will change us. When God says that that we have his Holy Spirit working through us, then we have his Holy Spirit working through us. When God says we've been made alive to him, then we will be made alive to him. When God says that his gospel will go out to all the nations, then his gospel will go out to all the nations. When God says that he will raise us out of the grave to new life, then God will raise us out of the grave to new life. I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. Let me pray. Father, There are so many situations in life, things that make us feel hopeless. So many times where we struggle to see, I guess, what it is that you're doing and what the purpose is. And yet we have every confidence. We have every reason to have a sure and certain hope because Jesus lives. Father, thank you that we have been made alive to God by the Holy Spirit. That great vision that Ezekiel saw, we're standing in it, we're we're part of it. We're not dead, we're alive. Father, thank you that your gospel is not hindered by anything, 
and there's no one too far gone. There's always hope. There's always hope for our nation. There's always hope for the churches. For where the word is preached, there will be life. Father, we pray that there will be many more whom we know and whom we come into contact with who will be made alive both now and for all eternity. Father, we thank you as well that death is not our end. That Jesus is our death conqueror, our king. And he has defeated the last enemy. Thank you that we can have every confidence in the face of what is such a black reality and through tears, mourning at the the horrendous truth of death, we can still be confident We can still grieve with with hope because Jesus has risen. So Father, help us to, to trust in you and your word, knowing that when you say something, it will be done. Help us not to be ashamed of the gospel, to proclaim it and to trust in the life giving spirit of God that is at work within us. Give us boldness. Holy Spirit, give us confidence in the truth. May we never tire of sharing this good news. In your name, amen. I'm going to close um, by singing our final hymn. I'm not sure.